Moses, you can take your seats. Moses was the leader of the nation of Israel at the time they were leaving Egypt and entering the promised land. And uh, Moses, the Bible tells us, got to speak to God face to face. Think about that. Uh, Who thinks that sounds like a great idea? Well, the people of Israel did not think it was a great idea because when Moses went up the mountain and spoke to God face to face, he came back and his face was glowing with the glory of God. And of course, the Israelites could not bear to be in the presence of God's glory because God is infinite and we are finite. God is perfect and man, we, we aren't perfect, are we? And the Israelites were scared and afraid and in terror. I'm going to die if I come into God's presence. And so they asked Moses, Moses, we don't want to talk to God. You talk to God for us. And please, will you cover your face up? Who's ever been told to cover their face up in church? I only wear a beard because my family thinks it's a great idea for this face to remain covered. Um, But it's a different type of glory that the Israelites were talking about. They were afraid. And so Moses put a veil over his face so that the glory of God would not freak out the rest of the nation, the people who didn't know God the way Moses knew God. And so you're left to make a call, aren't you? Like, is it cool to kind of speak to God face to face or is it a bit scary? And the movement goes like this. In terms of the idea, Moses goes and spends time in God's glory, face to face with the glorious God, and that changes him. He glows. And then he comes and he leaves that place, and everybody Moses comes into contact with goes, man, whatever you've been absorbing, that's changed you. And Paul says to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, now this where are we? Where are we? Okay, now, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Moses spent time in the glory of God, and he had to cover his face, and the whole nation of Israel couldn't bear it. This is the wonderful thing that the gospel gives you and I. The gospel gives you and I the ability to come before our heavenly father with unveiled faces. That means nothing in the way. And now as we do that, as Paul says, as we contemplate the Lord's glory, we are being transformed from glory to glory. This phrase, contemplate the Lord's glory. Who who likes a bit of contemplation time? Anybody? And we contemplate all sorts of things, don't we? You could say contemplate, you could say meditate, you could say ruminate. It's all all the same thing. Your mind revolves around stuff, doesn't it? And uh, I've got to be honest, there's a lot of competition for the Lord's glory in the contemplation part of my life. How about you? There's stuff that competes for the real estate in my mind and in my heart. How about you? You just need a couple of things to go wrong, don't you? And man, don't you certainly become contemplative? You certainly dive deep into meditation when you're experiencing any type of difficulty, don't you? Any type of stress? Have have you ever um, injured the toenail on your big toe? Ever had like an ingrown toenail? Something like that? One of our daughters, she'll remain nameless, but she had such a problem with her two big toes and the weird stuff that would happen to those toenails that when the rest of our daughters had hobbies, her hobby was podiatry. It's like, yeah, she does stuff, and she does stuff, and she does netball, and she tours the world playing violin or something like this, but this one, she just gets podiatric, pod- podiatric treatment. 
What's the adjective for podiatry? Any podiatrists in the room? It's a mystery, isn't it? Well, there you go. You've got something to Google now when you get too much more bored with my sermon. Um, and I, what was funny was because of the fact that that toe had an injury, it had an injury, it had something wrong with it, then you'd do all sorts of normal things, but she'd always be the one going, ow, I just hit my toe. Ever noticed that? Who, who in the middle of the night has had the joy of looking for the bathroom in the dark and just kicked that pinky toe on the edge of a skirting board on a wall? Hey, not going to ask you what you said. You can confess that later on, all right? But then everywhere you go, almost every time you've ever run down some steps and gone, oh, that hurt my toe. And you just, you know, the rest of the time you don't walk around contemplating your toes, do you? Do you? That's, that is a disorder in the uh, Diagnostic Statistical Manual, actually. Um, an obsession with feet. If you have it, we can pray for you later. Um, but you don't contemplate your toes, but boy, you're aware of them when something goes wrong, and then you do do a whole lot of contemplation, don't you? And what a great picture for the rest of our lives, that when something goes wrong, stuff we'd normally not obsess over, stuff we'd normally not ruminate on. You know, you probably don't think much about me until I offend you. And then you think about me a real lot, don't you? Tell your friends, blog about me, get your voodoo doll out, and weird, weird, weird. And what about other people in your life as well? There's people at work that you never come home and talk about, but they just do one thing to you at work, and then, man, you're at home all night unpacking with your significant others, aren't you? Yes. Throwing the dog a biscuit and telling him, rip Bob's head off, Fido. Um, and and it's, a, it's a common human trap, isn't it? That There's all sorts of stuff that we don't contemplate, but, boy, if something becomes problematic in our lives, then we devote a whole lot of contemplation time to it, don't we? Now, that's fine, because sometimes it serves a purpose, like strategic contemplation. I've got a problem and I'm going to analyse how I strategize to deal with this problem. But most of the time, the type of contemplation, the type of rumination or the type of obsession that you and I find ourselves devolving mentally, emotionally and spiritually into is not the type of contemplation that is strategic and problem solutions oriented, is it? Do you think? Most of the time, we get caught like, remember the old record players? Who remembers them? All the young people are like, what is this new teaching? And you just had to get one scratch on it. And then when that thing was playing around, it would just and play the same thing over and over and over and over again. And sometimes our brains are like that, aren't they? they we just skip a beat and we're just going round and round and round and round in circles. And so one of the things that Paul is addressing with the Corinthians is how they deal with all the associated challenges of being a Christian group of followers in a very non-godly world. And they had all sorts of stuff going on in Corinth. If, if, if you want, um, you know, like 18 plus reading, read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. The type of problems that were present in the church at the time are absolutely hair-raising, and I'm glad to see that several of those problems have never reflected themselves in DLC, so thank you very much for being better than the Corinthians. And so Paul is teaching them that in the midst of the mess and in the midst of the brokenness and in the midst of the problems, and I mean, there are some literally hair-raising problems in, in this book, man. And Paul's saying all sorts of crazy stuff to them. Hey, stop sleeping with your mum, somebody. And in the midst of all that, they have to learn what they're going to spend their time contemplating, what they're going to spend their time and energy contemplating. And so Paul reminds them, this is what we do as believers. This is what transforms us. It's not following more rules. Like the Old Testament said, don't eat ham. And in the New Testament, now there's all these other sorts of laws that aren't about ham. 
It's not about following more rules. It's not about getting more law. It's not about getting more Torah. It's not about even being more religious. It's not even about moralism and just being a better person. It's not about therapeutic deism, which is some type of that God upstairs in heaven and every time I think about him, it's a little bit good for me. It's about contemplation of the glory of God. That I, because the gospel has acted in my life through the sacrifice of Jesus that died to free me from the power of sin, the penalty of sin, and the pollution of sin, and then me who was far away from God could now, through no virtue of my own, receive God's grace, God's unmerited favor, and be brought near to God. And that means the veil is taken off my face, and I can now know God face to face. Come on, that's what the gospel does in us, isn't it, friends? Who's grateful for Jesus? And now... This is what is transforming. I behold his glory. I contemplate his glory with an unveiled face and I am changed from glory to glory. I am renewed in God's image. It's not about behavior modification. It's not about condemnation. It's not about rules and regulations. It's not about religion. It's not about some type of mystical deistic humanism where I just put in my best effort and I'll change. It is that I am transformed from glory to glory when I behold the glory of God. Any psychologist will tell you that whatever you contemplate most will shape your identity. A neurologist will tell you that whatever you contemplate most will shape the very function, connection and existence of the neurons in your brain. This is so powerful that what you most contemplate has the capacity to regulate the expression of things in your genetic code. And it can turn on genes and it can turn off genes. Think about that. There's a new emerging science, epigenetics, which tells us about how it's not just nature that shapes us, but how nurture and nature work together to shape the very expression of our genes. Think about that. And it begins with what goes on in the world of your and my contemplation. And the Bible said for thousands of years, you become like what you behold most. You become like what you worship. If you worship idols that are deaf and dumb and blind, then you will become spiritually deaf and dumb and blind. But if you worship the living God, then you take on the life-filled characteristics of the living God. Who thinks that's amazing? And we've been going in a series over the last number of weeks called knowing Jesus. You can get the previous messages on our YouTube channel or our podcast or search on Spotify or something like that. And particularly last week, we had a lot of visuals, so it may be worth getting onto YouTube and grabbing some of the visuals that will help you sort of conceptualise what we're talking about. The series has been focused on this very thing of the contemplation of Jesus, on how we come face to face with God in transformative ways that change us, that renew us in the image of God and change us from glory to glory. The primary text for our series comes from the second letter of Peter, and it's chapter 1, and it's the first four verses. And today I'm just going to read from verse 2 and verse... uh, From 2 through to verse 4. Listen to what he says. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. How do I get grace and peace? What is the on-ramp? It's the knowledge of God and of Jesus. Listen to this verse 3, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. There's that word glory again. Through these, through what? Through his own glory, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature 
having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Many of us are plagued by the stuff that goes on inside of us. And uh, we wonder, how do we escape that? And Peter has given us this wonderful phrase, the knowledge of God, through our knowledge of him. And he says, through our knowledge of him, we can do a number of things. Number one, we can access an abundance of grace and peace. In fact, we'll put that first slide up, if we could, Donna, please. Here is the summary of this passage's statements on how, what are the effects of knowing Jesus? What are the effects of the knowledge of God? And we have unlimited grace and peace. We have divine power that gives us everything we need for life and godliness. And we can become partakers of the divine nature. And then all of that provides an on-ramp. The knowledge of God is an on-ramp to these things, but it's also an off-ramp. And it's an off-ramp to corruption and evil desires that plague us. And this word knowledge, we'll put up the next slide if we could. Thanks, Donna. The next, this word knowledge is the Greek word epignosis. And it means to know exactly and recognize and come to know by directing my attention to, to perceive, to discern, to recognize. This is another word for contemplation. This is another word for meditation. It's not just the head knowledge of God, acquisition of data and facts. This is relational knowledge of God. Time giving a relational attention to God. In the first century world, they were hung up on this type of knowledge called gnosis, head knowledge, philosophy, theology. And Peter says, that's not actually the way you know God, not just through the acquisition of data. You know God relationally by knowing and directing God's attention to you, by loving God and being loved by God. That's how you know God. We direct our attention to. Well, how do we direct our attention to? And over the last few weeks, we've begun to Use this phrase to give Jesus focus. And last week we clarified what that meant by saying that we give Jesus focus through engaging in Christian spiritual practices. And we've used this diagram here that's in green about directing our attention to Jesus, about engaging in Christian spiritual practices. And Christian spiritual practices are grouped into two types of practice. There are internal practices and there are external practices. And the thing about those practices is they exercise two types of change on a person. Internal practices are things like prayer, meditation, things like studying the word, reading the word, memorizing the word, chewing over the word, private worship. They're they're internal practices. Then there are external practices like serving and giving and uh, engaging in mission and coming together with God's people in corporate worship. This is an external practice today. One of the reasons we lift our hands in worship, it's an external practice. It doesn't just happen on the inside of me. It's that what has happened on the inside of me also spills to the outside of me. There are internal practices And there are external practices. We're going to spend a lot of time this year talking about what they are and helping each other get better at doing it. Not because of some new law, not because of some behavior modification technique, because these things are pathways. They are on-ramps that help us in this epignosis, this directed attention to Jesus. Now, this next slide, have a look at it. It shows you the two types of change that Christian spiritual practice wrought in people's lives. This particular research was done by Harvard Medical College. And Harvard Medical uh, did, did research on um, how is it that people of different faith experiences and different faith expressions are shaped or affected or impacted by the expressions of their faith. And what they found, particularly with the Christian group, was that with the Christian group, external Christian practices induce state change in your life. That is when you worship God, when you serve. Something happens, it happens at the neurological level. They can scan your brain and show you state change happening. We were worshipping Jesus this morning and I, I felt inspired. How about you? Yeah. I could hear God's people singing and the wonderful worship team and I was feeling inspired. Who, who was feeling inspired? Yeah. I actually felt the presence of God. Did anyone else feel the presence of God? I sensed the nearness of God. 
I felt my faith stirred. Who felt their faith stirred in worship this morning? You know what you experienced? State change. Something happens at the realm of your experience. Another interesting piece of research done by a neuroscientist was that um, the type of state change that happens in Christian worship is thoroughly different to the type of state change that happens if you memorise your favourite poem, no matter how inspiring it is. It's thoroughly different to the type of state change that you might experience if you write a letter to Santa Claus getting excited about all the presents that he's going to send you. It's a different type of state change. It's a different quality of state change. And the reality of it is, is of a different nature. Isn't that interesting? But there's this other type of change. It's not just state change, which is short term. That is, state change wears off pretty quick. Ever had a wonderful time in worship and had a fight with someone in the car on the way home? Danielle and I solved that. We come in separate cars. And when we can't come in separate cars, she's willing to walk home to avoid the inevitable. (laughs) Um, it, It wears off, it's quick. So have you ever had the experience of like going to youth group or going to a Christian conference, or, or being in church worship, or responding in prayer, or hearing an amazing word, or reading something amazing in Scripture, and it's fired you up, like Jeremiah said, it's become like fire in your bones. Have you ever had the experience? And have you ever thought, man, I'm bulletproof, I'm never going back to my old life, I'm following Jesus, everything's amazing, I'm like Iron Man with the Spirit, pew, 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 pew. Have you ever had that experience? If you haven't had that experience, press in more to external Christian practices, and you will experience some state change, nothing wrong with it at all. But here's the thing about state changes, it wears off. So no matter how many mountaintop experiences that you've had, eventually you've woken up on Wednesday just a complete, normal, bored, depressed human. And remember like three days ago, but I was on that mountaintop, I was having visions, I was flying around the room, I was speaking in tongues more than the Apostle Paul, I was raising the dead. Have you ever had that type of experience? But then you've got to wake up in the morning and clean out the kitty litter, don't you? Oh, man. I've, I've, I've had this experience so many times because on a mission trip or pra- traveling and preaching at a conference or preaching in another church, you know, people really look after you when you're a guest speaker somewhere else and they really treat you special and you sort of just sort of float around the whole time, you know, but then you go home and the first thing your wife says is, would you take out the rubbish dial? <laughs> State change over, back to normal. State change is short-term. It has its value. It's very important, actually, because it has a motivational value. That is, it helps you take the next step that you're supposed to take. And that's the thing. Whenever you experience Christian state change, you don't camp where you experience the state change. The state change is a motivational catalyst for you to take your next step. Your next step. Your... Okay? Christian burnout happens when you live in the zone of state change and you never take your next step. And eventually you go round, or this is the problem with most revival culture. Let's do a revival meeting every night of the week, and the same five people will come, and the same five people will fall over, and the same five people will, the state change will wear off, and they'll be normal again until they go to the next revival meeting. Then they'll have their own personal little revival and fall over and shake and rattle and roll, and then they'll do it by Wednesday. They're a normal person. They'll come back and do it again. And they can do it for 20 years. And I know plenty that have. Listen, I'm a Pentecostal pastor, my friends. I can outweird any of you any day of the week. Any day of the week. Okay, And why don't I do that is because I understand that although the state change experienced in wonderful Christian worship, and I hope you do experience it, I'm all for it, baby, but it's short term and it wears off. It changes your state in the moment, but you need something else if you want your life to change. Too many of us live at the mercy of our emotions, and so whenever our emotions change and our emotions provide a motivation for us to do or be something, we do it as long as our emotions lead us that way. It's okay. It's kind of the way we're wired. But the problem with that is that as soon as my emotions change, now I'm doing something else, like that unused gym membership in your top drawer. 
Know what I'm saying? Every December, January, motivation spikes, usually on the back of a lot of Christmas ham, turkey and pavlova. And then January kicks and we all make New Year's resolutions while emotion is high to change our lives and we all go and we get our gym membership but then by February it's gym member what? And you see it on Alice Springs buy, swap, sell. Lasseter's membership, good prices going away. Hardly used. Only used by an old lady on Sundays and she should have been at church. Um, because our emotion has worn off. So the temporary state change, listen, it's very beneficial. It's hugely important in motivation, in motivating you to take your next step, okay? But it doesn't last. So you need this other thing. We'll put the uh, diagram back up, please, if we could, Donna. You need this other thing called trait change. And trait change is where the very structure of your personality, identity, and even your brain changes, usually permanently, until something else changes those traits. Does that make sense? Listen, External Christian practices bring state change, but there is no research to show that they bring trait change. That is, you can come to church every day of the week, every day of your life, and even though it might make you feel something, it will never change your personality, it will never change your character, and it will never change your identity. The research says that trait change is a long-term thing. That is, it happens like a current. You start here and you drift into change. You drift into transformation. You are taken by a current and it changes you. But it's long term. It's about your identity and a character. But listen to this. Trait change is borne out by internal Christian practices, not external Christian practices. Make sense? Trait change is usually accompanied by state change. That is, if you go away today and you pray and meditate for Jesus on a few hours, you will encounter Christ, who's had that experience before in their own private devotional life and their own private prayer life. Okay, you will encounter Christ and you will experience state change. But the more you increase your interface with Jesus, beholding him with an unveiled face, you don't just experience state change, you experience trait change. Now, I'm a pastor, so let me tell you one of the most common questions I deal with. I've been following Jesus for five years. I've been following Jesus for 10 years. I've been following Joseph for 50 years. Why hasn't this changed? Well, husbands and wives, he's been following Jesus for 10 years. Why hasn't he changed? Or wives, she's been following Jesus for 35 seconds. Why hasn't she changed? And I'll tell you why. Because sometimes for most of us, our Christian expression is only very shallow. And it's so shallow that it only is persevered into long enough where we may possibly experience some state change. And even worse than that is when we've never experienced any state change because we haven't at all focused and engaged properly with Christ. There's plenty of people who've like that. If you've never had an experience of God, if you've never had an encounter with God, okay, probably is that you've never persevered in external or internal Christian practice enough to encounter the state change that really does happen. But listen, I don't just want to be a church where we come together and have whoop de doo state change every week, or once every three weeks, as is most of the people in DLC's church attendance habits, which is even worse. I want to be a church where we persevere in contemplating and beholding the glory of the Lord with an unveiled face, so that we are truly changed from glory to glory, like the Word of God says. Who could say amen to that? And then... We change. We don't just feel something. We actually change. Our on-ramp to knowing Jesus is the on-ramp to this trait change, to this transformation. And on every page of the New Testament, it's different language because it wasn't written by Harvard Medical. It was written by Paul or Peter or James or John. 
But on every page of the New Testament, you are invited into a deep, intimate, and personal encounter, an experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ that shapes your experience and shapes your traits and personally transforms you and I. And that is correlative to how much focus we actually give this process. Like everything else, I can promise you this, my friend, whatever you've spent most time focusing on, that's what you'll like. So the pathway that Scripture gives us for this type of beholding, this type of contemplation, what is this internal spiritual practice? I'm going to put this slide up. It lives, Christian practice lives at the centre in this thing called biblical meditation. Biblical meditation. All Christian spiritual practices are fed to us in the Word of God and, in fact, use the Word of God as the primary vehicle that shapes us. At the heart of the Christian life is Scripture, is biblical meditation. And that is the nexus point, the overlapping point, the joining, the centre of three things. One, the Word of God. Two, meditation. And three, prayer. And they are a little bit different, meditation and prayer. Especially if your prayer life is only like a five-year-old that goes to bed every night and gives God the shopping list before you go to sleep. Biblical meditation, the centre of the Word of God, the centre of our meditation and our cognition the centre of our contemplation, the centre of our rumination, the centre of our focus, all done in a prayer-filled manner. My friends, biblical meditation is the heartland of encountering God in ways that transform you. And this, by the way, biblical meditation is not just study of Scripture, which you know I can study Scripture in a way that will put you to sleep for five years if you want. But it's not just the acquisition of more data, it is the directive attention to Jesus Christ who is at the centre of the Word of God. Public worship gives us state change, but it doesn't give us trait change. To experience trait change, we must permeate our lives, our mind, our will and our emotions, that is the thoughts I think and the focus I give, the choices I make and the feelings that I tolerate or cultivate. I must permeate that part of me with God's Word for trait change. Paul hinted on this when he spoke to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14 and verse 16. He's written Timothy a number of letters, in fact, and he's written a number of chapters in the book of 1 Timothy. He's told him all sorts of things, saturated in the Word of God, writing the very Word of God himself. And then listen to what Paul says as he starts to land the book, as he starts to summarise what he said. Verse 15 of 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says, Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them, so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is going to be uh, slide nine, wonderful production peeps, and uh, we're going to put up the meaning of these words. Okay, listen to, Paul gives Timothy four steps and then tells him there's one benefit of that step. Here they are on the screen. The first thing he says is, be diligent in these matters. He says, give yourself wholly to them. He says, watch your life and doctrine closely. Then he says, persevere in these things. Let's do a bit of a word study. I looked up these in the original Greek, and let me help you understand what the translators are trying to get to. Being diligent is the Greek word meleta, which means to revolve around in the mind, to revolve inside your mind. Let these things, I don't know why they've chosen the translation, be diligent. To me, it just doesn't exactly hit on the right meaning, but who, you know, in their wisdom, the NIV translation committee knew what they were doing. Um, The NASB says, these things ponder, these things ponder, and it's probably a good translation. 
Revolve these things around. Take God's word. Take what is written and revolve it around in your mind. That's contemplation. That's beholding. That's biblical meditation. Then he says, give yourself wholly to these things. It's the Greek word isthi, which means to be absorbed in, to find your existence in. Revolve these things around in your mind. Be absorbed in these things. Paul has sent Timothy a written letter, which Paul knows by his own pen is the word of God. And he says, take this writings, take this scripture and revolve it around in your mind. Be absorbed in it. Give yourself wholly over to it. It's not just the acquisition of facts, friends. It is the center point of focus. Listen to what he says. Watch your life and doctrine. There's that word, watch, watch, is epeko, which means to hold on. Hold on to yourself. When it says, watch your life, it says, hold on to yourself. Ever had someone say, grab a hold of yourself? What does that mean? Get focused. One time, Danielle, um, she was doing dishes, which was a miracle in itself. You know? no, it's a joke, it's a joke, Danielle. She was, she was doing dishes and she, she smashed a glass in the sink and she just cut herself maybe like a four or five centimetre slice in, which finger was it? It wasn't the driving turn signal finger. She, she, she cut herself, and she began to have a panic attack as soon as she saw that blood. And her children were quite small. They were maybe like three and four and five at the time, and sitting in front of the wiggles one minute, and then the next minute their mother's at the sink going, <laughs> I was look, walking around the house looking for Casper the friendly ghost. And Danielle began to have a panic attack because she, it wasn't a very serious cut, but there was a little bit of blood. You know when you see the blood before you notice how bad the cut is and you straight away freak out? Who's about to faint now because we're talking about blood? I'll move on. And so we went and I went over there and I provided immediate emergency first aid with a calm head and a firm spirit full of faith. <laughs> and Danielle just wouldn't stop boiling like a kettle mare. So I'm a little teapot. <laughs> she, just, she was escalating. And then the kids are all having a panic attack because they've just thought, okay, mum's dying now. She's killed herself. Great. And then we're going to be stuck living with dad. So then they're on the floor. They're having a panic attack as well. And so while Danielle was going crazy, I'm saying, Danielle, calm down. Danielle, calm down. I'm going to tell you a good secret if you're a man in a house full of women, which I've got a wife and three teenage daughters, okay? Don't raise your voice, lower it. By the, if you're a yeller, if you're a yeller at your family, by the time you keep bellowing at them, they get used to it anyway. What's really scary is when you do this. Right, come here. It's like, uh-oh, when dad goes quiet, that's scary. So it's just a little tip for all of you to stop, you know, your children get immune to you bellowing at them like you're an ox in the field. And I did say to Danielle, Danielle, be quiet. Danielle, pull yourself together. Danielle, calm down. And she was just going off. So I grabbed her by the shoulder and said, Danielle, pull yourself together. And she goes. I said, okay, you're scaring the children. It's not that bad. We will provide medical attention. But could you please keep it down? Did I say it that way? Danielle's correcting the story with Haley. She's going, no, he was so mean. He'd gone out the dead hole and sprayed it on, poured salt and lemon juice in my wounds. And Paul says to Timothy, grab a hold of yourself, okay? Now, the truth is, in life, stuff happens to us and we freak out. Isn't that true? We do. We get occupied. We get preoccupied. We, we immerse ourselves in it. Our mind revolves around it. And that's what Paul is getting at with Timothy here. Hey, it's normal. The world is full of challenges. And if the world outside is full of challenges, you yourself, your head's full of challenges. Isn't that true? Your heart, it's full of challenges and you're not getting condemned for it or beaten for it. But what Paul says is sometimes you've just got to pull yourself together, grab a hold of yourself and then let your mind revolve around in something else. 
And so the Word of God supplies for us the content of our contemplation, the content of our meditation, the content. What am I supposed to do when I'm under the pump and my mind won't stop revolving around stuff? Just insert something new. How many computer people are in the house? They're all at home watching online. (laughs) What does Geigo mean in in techno-speak? Anyone know? I know something more than the computer people in the house. What's that ID10T code? I keep getting given that one. Garbage in, garbage out. Geigo. How do Americans say it, Chris? Gigo? Geigo. Garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> and so Paul is saying, hey, you know, if you put, put the good stuff in, Be diligent. Let this stuff revolve around in your head. Give yourself wholly to it. Be absorbed in that. We get absorbed in all sorts of stuff, don't we? And listen, I'm not trying to get you to formulate something new or drastically change how you live your life, okay? I'm trying to help you understand that the pathway for transformation actually looks a whole like what you do anyway. You revolve stuff around in your mind anyway. You give stuff focus anyway. You get hung up on stuff anyway. You freak out about stuff anyway. Well, now grab a hold of yourself. And take what God's word supplies and put that in there. I love what Psalm 119 said, the entrance of your word gives light. It's amazing, isn't it? Watch yourself. And then he says persevere. The word persevere is epimene, epimene. And it means to continue in, to tarry in. Who loves the word tarry? Oh, it's a shame that's left the English language. Love it. The word tarry, tarry in it. Tarry in it, tarry in it. Tarry in these things. Take them and be absorbed in them. You know, when Paul writes this to Timothy, he's drawing on a long history about what it is that we revolve around in our minds, about what it is we should be absorbed in, about what it is we should hold on to, about what it is we should continue in. But listen to the benefit. Paul says, if you do this, you will heal both yourself and your hearers. Now, Timothy's a pastor, he's a preacher, so Paul is already encouraging, hey, mate, get that word of God out there, devote yourself to it, publicly read it, then preach and teach it. And then this is what he says, but if you do all this stuff, you will save yourself and you will save your hearers. But he doesn't use the normal word sozo for salvation, which he means he's not talking about you will conduct evangelistic moments where people give their lives to Jesus and experience salvation. He uses this word sosace, which means to heal, to be healed, to be delivered. And there's an incredible key in the Christian life that comes from the pen of Paul, okay? If I revolve God's word around in my life, If I am absorbed in God's word, if I grab a hold of myself and then hold on to myself and hold on to the teaching of of Scripture, if I continue in it, if I remain in it, if I tarry in it, listen, I will be healed. But then if I do it with others, they will be healed. I thank God for the numerous people over my lifestyle that have helped me do this that have modelled it for me and done it in public and done it in private and encouraged me to do it, have helped me learn, hey, Ben, you're just, your mind's going around and around the wrong stuff, but you've got to break that pattern, man. You've got to get into something else. That's the only way that I can stand before you as someone who's no longer deeply depressed and deeply traumatised and deeply ill, someone who's no longer a snorter and a drinker and a smoker and a dictator, because I've learned that there is an off-ramp in God's word to the things that shape our lives. Now, what's been shaping your life, if you're honest? What's been shaping your life? Are you happy with it? I think most of us, we know we want more. 
We know we want more. We know there's more wholeness for us, don't we? We know there's a better version of ourselves and we're chasing it. We, we, we know there's a healed us. We know there's a, a hold us. We know there's a victorious us in the mind of God, yes? yes? Hopeless amen for a wonderful point. We know there's more for us. Who can give me a good amen in the house? Yes. And if we do what Paul says, we will experience healing. We will experience healing. The Christian gospel is not about working your way into God's good graces. The Christian gospel is about receiving the grace of God, which has a transformational healing effect on your life. In Jesus' name, who can say amen to that? Psalm 1 says that if we meditate on God's word day and night, we will be like a tree planted by the waters whose leaves will never never wither. Our roots will go down deep. Psalm 63 is all about earnestly. It's an extended meditation. We did that in our wilderness series. You can get the, uh, get the um, online resources where, where we immerse ourselves in God-seeking. And David uses all the great meditation words in Psalm 63. In Psalm 62, David talks about the fact that God is his refuge and therefore his security is in God. And that's the truth, my friends. Whatever it is that I seek refuge in formulates my identity. In Psalm 91, this is brilliant. In Psalm 91, the psalm is, begins with the meditation on God's protection, but at the end, it puts words in the voice, in the mouth of God. And in God's voice, it says, Because he has known me and set his love upon me, because he has sought to give me focus, because he has sought to connect with me, because he has sought to love me, I will give him my protection. Isn't that an amazing thing? It is the reciprocal act of God is both to encounter us and transform us when we set our love upon him. And we do it primarily in this nexus point between prayer and meditation and the scriptures. Psalm 42 verse 1 says, Like a deer pants for water, God, so my soul thirsts and longs after you. And imagine that deer, that hunted deer being pursued by prey or hunters through the wilderness, panting, literally audibly gasping, and then finding water and drinking deep. And the, the, the Bible shows us in this image that that's what God is in our lives, that we are dry, that we are thirsty, that we are weary. Sometimes we're hunted by things, sometimes we're pursued by things, but God is the solution and we must drink deeply of him. And Jesus actually said that if you're thirsty, come and drink from him and then rivers of living water will not only fill you up, they will overflow outside of you. Won't only fill your belly, but they will come out of your belly. Has a transformation effect on us, and then it has a transformation effect on those around us. Psalm 5 is an early morning prayer. Give ear to my words, God. Consider my meditation. My meditation. And in the Hebrew, it's literally the word sighing. Consider that God focused on you. I sit here right now, and all I can do is sigh. Sometimes that's all you've got. But which direction are you sighing in? direction are you sighing in? In the book of Psalms, over 71 times, you'll find this phrase punctuating all of the great meditations. Silah. Silah. In Hebrew history, Silah began its life as a musical term, which meant here we'll insert into the singing, into the chorus of the choir, we'll insert a musical interlude. But of course, as scripture began to be read in community and meditated upon and repeated in community instead of um, played to music, Silah began to mean a pause for reflection, a meditative pause, a sacred time out to reflect on what's been said. Silah is something you should put in every paragraph of the Bible, a sacred time out so that you can meditate and reflect 
But it's not just Scripture in and of itself that forms the centre of our Christian meditation. It's not just that if I just take the words of the book and reflect on them, it's not just that is not just the way to be transformed. I want to show you this next slide. This is what Christian spiritual practices are, internal Christian spiritual practices. It's not just Scripture, meditation and prayer. Almost every religion has some form of those three things. It is Scripture, meditation and prayer centred on Jesus. That means when I read Psalm 42 and it says, God, like a deer panting for water, so my soul pants after you. Jesus is the God that I'm focusing on. That means in Psalm 119, verse whatever it is, that says, the entrance of your word gives light. It really means when I encounter Christ in my world, that is where light comes. That's why Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then Jesus said, if you take me in the light, then guess what happens to you? Now, you are the light of the world. I'm, being held, I'm beholding him, I'm contemplating him, and therefore, I am being changed from glory to glory. What is so important about this is that we understand that it is Jesus-centered. Too many of us are just fans of God. God meaning some Gandalf in the sky, some impersonal force maybe. But in Christian theology, the revolution of the Christian faith is that when we think of God, it's Jesus that we're thinking of. Jesus came and said, no one can even know God unless you take a look at me. Understand? And sometimes we imagine this schizophrenic trinity where there's like God and he's the angry judge with, you know, Gandalf in the sky, but then gentle Jesus, meek and mild, came to save me from that angry God. That is not what the Bible portrays. Jesus-centered. And that means, this is the innovation in the Christian life, that everything is directed in the direction of Jesus. Every scripture I read has Christ hidden in it. Now, start reading your Bible that way and go, how the heck do I make sense of that? It's an incredibly thrilling journey. It's especially an incredibly thrilling meditative journey. And the New Testament primarily expounds on the Old Testament and helps us see how Christ is at the centre of everything written in the Law and the Prophets. Jesus-centred. Listen to this in Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the universe. And the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification from sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. When we say we want to put God at the center, it's Jesus that we're talking about. We're saying it is Christ-centered. I'm putting Jesus at the center of my thoughts, at the center of my Bible study, at the center of my reading. What annoys me so much in public dialogue is how often I see the book of Exodus quoted on moral grounds, or the Ten Commandments used as if they're some sort of generic culture-building principles. Every single, in the words of Jesus, every single jot and tittle in the Old Testament, their Hebrew terms, is about Jesus, of whom he is the fulfilment. Jesus, he is the way God has spoken to us. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 2 from verse 5 onward says. We might have it to put it up on the screen. It's not to the angels that God has subjected the world to come about which he's been speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels and you crowned them with glory and honour and put everything under their feet. Wow, everything under the feet of humans. What an awesome world that would be, hey? It's not talking about like environmental degradation. This is saying that humans would truly, in God's nature, in God's love and in God's justice and His beauty and His shalom, that humans would rule and reign over the cosmos. But how many people know all sorts of stuff rules and reigns over us, doesn't it? 
And how do we deal with that disparity? That God made us to rule and reign and live victorious, royal lives, expressing His justice and His beauty and His shalom and His holiness. And how do we deal with the fact that that is not our experience? He says, in putting everything under His feet, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we don't see everything subject to them. Isn't that true? Well, I don't see this victory in my life all the time. I don't see this ruling and reigning in my life all the time. Sometimes I see despair. Sometimes I see discouragement. Sometimes I see failure. What about you? He says this, we don't see everything subject to them, but verse 9, listen, but we do see Jesus. Do you see Jesus? Are you looking to Jesus? Are you directing your focus to Jesus? Is He at the centre? The only way you and I can have our lives transformed by the revelation that we are made to rule and reign is if it's Jesus that we see. We don't see everything subject to us, but we do see Jesus. When the world is chaos around me, I need to lift my eyes and begin to contemplate Christ. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 3 says, the next chapter over. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Well, how would I do that? Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Well, how would I do that? Listen, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You understand what he's saying? If I want to do all this stuff, what do I do? I must fix my minds on my mind on Christ. Listen to what Colossians chapter 3 says. We're going to put it up on the board. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Listen to that phrase. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when you see this word life, you should see it like capital L, bold type, underlined, red letter, okay? Your life. This is like mm, fullness of life, the Zoe life, the full life that God has called you for. Where is that life? I want to see it. Well, it is hidden with Christ in God. And therefore, the only way you're going to uncover it is by going to God. The only way you're going to uncover it is by fixing your thoughts and mind on Jesus. That's the flow of thought of Paul. Set your minds on Jesus because that's where fullness of life is hidden. It's hidden. It's a mystery. How would I experience this mystery? I must fix my thoughts on Jesus. I must fix my mind on Christ. And I'm an expert at fixing my mind on all sorts of stuff. How about you? So I'm not having to learn a new skill because I set my mind on things all the time. I meditate all the time. So do you. But. What is the substance of your thought and meditation? That is where the mystery lies. Our lives are a little bit like the apostles that walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Do you remember the story? Jesus is resurrected and of course he's been crucified and three days later he raises but not everyone knows he's resurrected yet because the disciples went everywhere. They thought, okay, this is a sign of defeat, it's over, we're discouraged. And two of them decided to walk to Emmaus, a different town. And they were despairing as they walked to Emmaus. They were despairing of everything that happened. They were in grief about the passing of Jesus and the uproar in Jerusalem and all sorts of stuff. And then in in Luke, Luke tells a story that actually the resurrected Jesus came and walked along beside them and said, hey guys, what are you talking about? I love this story because actually I can't tell you how often this is you and I. I'm not going to accuse you, let me tell you about me. This is me, man. This is me. How many times God has to intrude on my thoughts because I've devolved down into a spiral. 
And it's like, it's, it's almost like sometimes I stop and I pray and tangibly God's presence come and the Holy Spirit says, hey Ben, what you've been thinking about? And I don't want to be like the rest of the story portrays, but I think it's there for our benefit to help us, to encourage us and to nudge us and shape us. In, in the story, they walk along with Jesus and they're like, yeah, you wouldn't believe it, we're following Jesus. And, he's like, and they begin telling Jesus everything as if he doesn't know. Worst type of prayer, by the way, huh? Ever stopped and thought, hang on, God knows this. He knows this. It's not for God's benefit that I do this, it's for, for mine. And they, they're praying, they, they, I mean, they're walking along and they're talking and then Jesus starts going, well, guys, don't you know this is, this is, exactly, this is exactly what the Scripture said? And he begins to talk them through the Scriptures and then they sit down and they eat with him. Let's pick up the story. Pick up the story in Luke 24 from verse 27. He rebukes him and said, come on, this all had to happen. And then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the Scriptures according to himself. See that? It's a fundamental innovation in the teaching of Jesus that everything in the Old Testament points to Christ. And so, reading it through a lens of Jesus is the only adequate way to read it. He, 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 he took them through. Man, if you think I preach long, imagine sitting with someone who's going to begin in Genesis and go all the way through. To say, thank God, thank God for shorter sermons. And as they approached the village where they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day is almost here, and he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread and he gave thanks, and he broke it again, and he gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened. Oh! <laughs> and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Think about that. Were not our hearts burning within us while he was with us on the road and he opened the scriptures to us? That is how you read the Bible, friends. Now listen, most of us, we live our life walking along, chatting, despairing, I'm guilty of it, and we forget, Jesus is walking with me. He's walking with me. You ever seen that, um, that sign that you see on people's walls sometimes or the poster, footprints? The footprints in the sand? I hate that. I hate that thing. I absolutely hate it. Absolutely hate it. I can tell you why I hate it, because I just need to get some therapy off my chest. Is that okay? I was walking along through the tough times and then everything was fine. There's two sets of footprints. And then I went through my difficult times, Jesus, and then there's only one set of footprints. And where were you, Lord? Oh, my child. That single set of footprints is the time I carried you through. Can I tell you something? Jesus is never coming to carry you through your challenges. Jesus is never coming to carry you through your challenges. Like you are a passive, helpless victim. Jesus is coming to do something else to inhabit your life and fill you with himself and fill you with his power so that you will be able to walk through whatever challenge you face. You don't need to be carried. You will be risen up like the, like the paraplegic in the Gospels. Oh, it's a, it's a pointless prayer. God, would you carry me through this time? Because Jesus is not in the dragging around invalid business. Jesus is in the resurrection business. So listen, I'm not saying this to condemn you because I'm sure we've all prayed, God, I need you to carry me through this season. Okay? The better prayer 
is to go to Christ and recognize that He walks with you on the road. It's not that there's ever only been one set of footprints. There's always two sets of footprints. But the question is, do you, are you even aware that Jesus is walking with you? When we receive the gospel, Jesus takes up residence on the inside of us. So he doesn't even walk with me. He lives in me. He lives in you. Think about that. You're a walking, talking, living temple. Paul said to the Corinthians twice, 1 Corinthians 3.16, the body of you is a temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6.19, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to tell you one of the most annoying prayers. And sometimes after all these years, I still make the mistake of praying it. And our staff tease me because they know my stance on it. Here's a really stupid prayer. Holy Spirit, would you come and fill this place? I think some of us, we still think that our relationship with God is like that he's a golden fuzz cloud that's going to somehow descend on us. Because that's Old Testament. New Testament, there's no golden fuzz cloud. There's Jesus. He is the radiance of God's glory, the glory of God, the exact representation of his being. And now he lives in us. So the prayer is not, it's Holy Spirit, will you fill this place? That's Holy Spirit, will you fill us up? Will you fill us up? And will you come out of us? Will you overshadow our life? Will you fill our minds? Will you fill our hearts? Will you let those rivers of living water fill me so they can come out and transform me? And how we do it on every page of Scripture. And over this series, like you think about how long we've camped in this series now. This is the sixth sermon on this message. What we are preoccupied with fills us. Fills us. It was part of a youth consultation when we lived in Brisbane in a particular area. And we found out that amongst the either 11 and 12 students, there was a lot of sexual violence in that school. And what we found is that those year 11 and 12 students were going and grabbing booze and then going off to someone's house and they were watching um, violent videos on YouTube and interspersed through those violent videos on YouTube was semi-clad women if they were wearing anything. And they were feasting on this mixture of alcohol and violence and sexual imagery. And then guess what happened? The whole microcosm of that school took on the culture of their contemplation. The thing they were looking at, the thing that they were shaped by began to shape them. And then it shaped their community. Listen, whatever you contemplate, whatever you meditate on, it fills you and it shapes you. And then here's the crazy thing. Then it affects everyone around you. Isn't that true? Just ask your partner. They know when you're having a bad day by the tone of the way you shut the door, by the way you put your bag down, by the way you answer the first question. What's for dinner tonight, honey? Ka-ching! I'm the cook in our house, so it's normally me getting upset about that question. Actually, India's now the cook. Jesus made an innovation. Let's put up the last slide if we could. Thank you, Donna. You've been brilliant today. Here's the innovation that Jesus did. Okay. Scripture has no value unless it goes through a Jesus-filled lens. Prayer and meditation has no value unless it's a Jesus-filled lens. And the temple sacrifice and worship, listen, it is finished. This is everything about the gospel of John. Everything about the gospel of John is the biography of Jesus as he increases and the passing away of the temple structure. That's why in John, Jesus says, you can knock this building down and I'll raise it up in three days. And John says, yeah, he was talking about his body. The resurrected Jesus replaces the building with bricks and stone. No more sacrifice. Why? Jesus was the sacrifice. No more reading Torah. Why? Because John says in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. 
You would never be preoccupied with law and Torah now when you have a living, breathing word. And the job of that Torah is to describe that living, breathing word for you. Jesus is the word of God, found in the word of God. Some people say it like this, the Lord of the word is the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the Word, John said, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. Listen to this. And that life was the light of all mankind. Got to go to Jesus. Okay, I'll just pray. No, I've got to revolve it around in my mind. I've got to get this Christ-centered Word We've got to have Christ-centered meditation. We've got to have Christ-centered prayer. If I do it, I won't just experience state change, but I hope you do because we need a whole lot of state change often in our lives. But the world needs us to have trait change, friends. The world needs us to be transformed people. Your family needs it. Your workplace needs it. Your vocation needs it. A carnal you turning up is no good. A Christ-centered, Christ-filled spirit you turning up, that, that, that makes a big difference. Isn't that true? to our families and our relationships and the issues in Alice Springs. You know what Alice Springs need? Probably not more government legislation. We've got a lot of that. If you're a government employee, we love you, but we don't need more government departments either. Billions of dollars over time. Doing the same thing, programs, NGOs. I was talking to Pastor Wayne Alcorn this week and we were having a prayerful, prayerful conversation on the phone and we were agreeing. What this country needs is not better politics. It is a revival of the revelation of Jesus in people's hearts, starting with his church and then taking our society by storm. Only Jesus transforms. When I was in Bible college, I spent a month in the Solomon Islands and we backpacked around all these islands, literally in dugout canoes and staying in grass huts and there was no electricity on these islands and we'd just walk with our backpacks from village to village on these islands and preach the gospel, preach the gospel. It was an amazing time, literally thousands and thousands of villagers gave their life to Christ while we were there. And it was amazing night after night as the meetings would grow and we'd start with 20 people and the next night it'd be 50 and the next night it'd be 100 and the next night it'd be 500. Then we'd find that people had canoed a four-hour canoe ride to come and hear the gospel of Jesus. And pretty soon the meetings, we'd just start by singing some songs and sharing some testimonies and preaching the word of God. And pretty soon those meetings, which we had had down to about 90 minutes at the start, they went all night as we prayed for people and watched them fall on the ground and have a full revelation of Jesus. As we watched them filled with the Holy Spirit, as we saw demons cast out of their lives. And with us the whole time was an interpreter. And that interpreter was a priest in the church of Melanesia. That is an Anglican priest. And he was in charge of the itinerary. And he was our main contact, taking us where we needed to go. And I noticed every night that he'd sneak off and I didn't know where he'd go. And I thought he had some business to be about. But he'd sneak off sort of as, the, as we were praying and all that stuff and he wouldn't be around. Then after three weeks, we had one week left. And the beginning of the fourth week, he came to me one morning and he said to me, Brother Ben, I've come to a conclusion. I know about Jesus, but I don't know Jesus. I've listened to what you're saying and to what you're preaching, and I think I know that the Bible says that, and I've heard of those ideas before, but I've actually never had a relationship with Jesus. He said, I know about God, but I don't know God the way you know God. What should I do? And right there and then, we just began to pray, and we saw the Spirit of God come into his life and make him born again. It was amazing. 
He then told to me afterwards, we spent a long time talking about this and we began to go through the scriptures and it's like a veil, like Paul, like Paul said, it's like a veil had been removed from his eyes. He was a completely different man in, in, in almost the blink of an eye. As we began to talk, he said, you know, every night you might have noticed I've been sneaking away. I said, oh, I didn't think you were sneaking. I did see you slipping off, though. And, and he said, what I've been doing every night in every village is I get the church wine and me and the other men of the village, we drink the church wine. And we drink ourselves to sleep. I was like, oh, that's not fair, guys. How come I'm out here preaching and you didn't invite me along? It was hard, all that preaching and praying. He said, I'm never going to do that again. I realize all of this time I've been pouring the wrong stuff out for these men. And he went around. So we were only with him for one more week. A large island in Solomon Islands called Santa Isabel. Went to all the villages, some of them massive villages with thousands and thousands of people. We let him preach the first night and share his testimony. Hundreds and hundreds of men came forward to receive prayer. Men that he'd been feeding booze to the previous night came and repented of their sins and gave their lives to Jesus. And as the week got better and better, we, we just ended up like carrying stuff and carrying the guitars and carrying the books and carrying the kids' craft and all that stuff. And we just let him do all the preaching because God set him on fire and his whole life was changed. This is in the days before email. Who remembers those medieval times? And so the way we would contact is we would have to ring a, on a telephone that had a dial and was attached to a wall. Remember those days, Danielle? Let me just park my frame over here. <sighs> so every now and then we'd ring, but you couldn't always get through, but we'd ring. And he would often write to us. And one time he wrote me a letter and said, Dear Brother Ben, it is with great joy I report to you that now 100% of the villagers on this island are experiencing revival. And thousands and thousands of people have given their lives to Jesus. So many, in fact, that 300 youth, and, and in the Solomon Islands, a youth is anyone between about 18 and 50, I think, from what I can gather. And about 300 of our youth have got in canoes and paddled to other islands to share the word of God. Isn't that amazing? Hey? He said, it's like we are living in the book of Acts again. And he was right. He was right, and I'll tell you why. Because he had data acquisition about Jesus. When he went to Bible college, he did a, a five-year master's degree. He knew about God, man. That's why we let him preach. Man, he knows in three languages. But he didn't know God. He didn't know God until he established a personal relationship with God. And that is what gets you into the book of Acts. Who could say amen? Once you bow your heads all over this room, we do have to finish today. I want to pray for you as we go. I pray for you, my friend, that you would begin to feel your heart stirred by what God has put in my heart as the shepherd of this church. To give Jesus focus. To see a life transformed, not just by experiential state change, but by being genuinely transformed through deep relationship and connectedness to Jesus. That Jesus would get your attention. I pray for you. I pray Jesus would get your attention in a way that changes your life. Paul said, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. That is, that we can actually know in our heart of hearts, we can know God, not just know about God. I pray for every person under the sound of my voice today that you would say in your heart a yes to the gospel. Yes, Lord, I'm your child. Yes, Lord, I want to be your child. I want to be set free from the power of sin, the pollution of sin, and the penalty of sin. Jesus, I want you at the center of my life. I want you at the center of my being. I pray you'd open God's word this week, my friend. 
that you'd find Jesus at the center of it, that you'd lend some focus time, some contemplation time. I pray you'd, in, as you go to sleep at night, like the psalmist said, I, I meditate upon you in the watches of the night. I meditate upon you in my bed. I pray amongst all of the competition for Jesus in your thought life that Jesus would get some focus and that you would begin to station yourself to love God and listen, to be loved by God, to love Him and to be loved by Him. I pray for you, my friend. I pray 2021 would be a year where we as a church know Jesus in a way greater than we've ever known Him before. Not just about Him, walking in a life-filled closeness to Him. In Jesus' name, I pray for whatever challenges you're facing, friend. I pray that you would be taken up with Jesus and called to walk on the water of the challenges that you're facing, the chaos and the wind and the waves. I pray you would walk with Jesus, turn to him, cry out to him and walk with him in Jesus' name.